Happy Bitcoin Monday, freaks. It's your host, Odell, here for another Citadel Dispatch, the show focused on actionable Bitcoin and freedom tech discussion. As always, Dispatch is funded by our audience. We have no ads or sponsors. It is only possible thanks to the donations of thousands of people around the world. So I want to thank you all who continue to support the show. The easiest way to support the show is by going to citadeldispatch.com slash donate. You can also donate to the show via paynims, via BIP47 payment codes. My paynim is Odell. Very easy to remember. Uh, paynims are supported right now by Samurai Wallet, Sparrow Wallet, and Stack Wallet. And it looks like Blue Wallet is about to merge support for paynims. You can also support the show using podcasting 2.0 apps such as Breeze Wallet, Fountain FM, and EchoLN.com, Podverse.fm. There's many different podcasting 2.0 apps. They work like regular podcasting apps. You simply search Citadel Dispatch, load up your wallet with Bitcoin, choose how many sats per minute you think the show is worth, and then as you listen, those sats flow directly to my node. Podcasting 2.0 also supports something called Boostergrams, Boostergrams allow you to attach a payment to a comment. And the top four Boostergrams from the previous episode are read before every dispatch. So with that said, from our last dispatch, we have Eric99 with 50,000 sats saying, stay humble, stack sats. Really great advice, Eric. We have at Stimmy, Matt, at, minute, at an hour, 20 minutes, you described as Satoshi's coins haven't moved. You're right. The plural does end in S. Wrong. The plural of Bitcoin is Bitcoin. We have at Garth with 20,000 sats. Give me a shaka sign. Cheers, Garth. And then we have Ride or Die Freak, Ape Mithrandur with 14,444 sats saying Matt is one more bank collapse away from saying 200K by conference day. I don't know what you're talking about, but I will say Caps Odell is hiding beneath the surface and I have to remind myself to stay humble every morning to keep him there. So with all that said, I want to thank the freaks who continue to support the show. Also, I know... We've, had, we've been in a bear market. Looks like it might be over. I'm not going to try and jinx anything. Uh, we're definitely in a recession. Might be going into global economic collapse. So I understand if you can't spare any sats. You can also support the show by subscribing on your favorite platform. It's available on every single podcast app by searching Citadel Dispatch. Also available on pretty much every platform. YouTube, Bitcoin TV, Rumble, Twitch. Um, subscribe to that. That really helps. Sharing with your friends and family. That really helps. Leaving reviews. That really helps. And last but not least, Dispatch is very unique in that we have a live audience, an interactive live chat for the audience coming in through YouTube, our matrix chat, which you can find at sillodispatch.com slash chat, which is 24-7, 365, even when the show isn't going on. Twitch, anyone who participates in the audience, I really do appreciate you. You guys make the show unique. I consider you host of the show along uh, with myself, and uh, I really do appreciate it. So with all that said, I want to introduce our wonderful guests. Today, we'll talk about Bitcoin mining incentives. Uh, we have mempools that are very full, uh, a lot of activity out there. Bitcoin mining incentives are more relevant than ever. First, we have Nick Hansen, uh, co-founder and CEO of Luxor. How's it going, Nick? Great. It's a great day to be a miner, uh, as with all days, but it does seem like recently it's been even better. Love to hear it. 
Thanks for joining us, Nick. And we have uh, Jonathan Beer, who's the man behind BitMEX Research and the author of The Block Size Wars. Great book. Pick it up if you haven't read it yet. Uh, it's, a bit of, it's a piece of history that a lot of people that haven't been around might not be familiar with, but it's a very important topic. So you should definitely read it if you, if you weren't around during the 2017 Block Size Wars. How's it going, Jonathan? Uh, very good, thanks. Um, Nick, you asked me in the private chat how to uh, participate in uh, the text chat. You can do that by going to citadeldispatch.com slash chat. Um, or you can go to the YouTube feed if you want to be on the YouTube chat. But as you can see, they're just coming. Or you can just talk to them like I do and just respond to them. Um, so with all that said, um, I don't know where we should start. Um, I guess an, uh, an, an interesting icebreaker is a topic that I'm very uh, passionate about, which is the fact that I think we may never see mempools clear again. Do you guys think we will see mempools clear again? Go ahead, Jonathan. Um, yeah, I guess that's a difficult question. Yeah, they may not clear again. Of course, there is no the mempool. Everyone has their own mempool. So depending on your local settings, your individual mempool may clear. Um, but yeah, if you're running a very deep, large mempool, you can, you're going to still have one sat per virtual byte transactions that will probably yeah, never clear, I guess, but I don't know. Yeah, with the with the default with a default node right now, we're purging anything below what, about four sat per vbyte, uh, which is probably the first time that's happened may, maybe since the last uh, since the last run in twenty one, um, and certainly uh, what we're seeing with you know with ordinals and inscriptions uh, does seem like there is now a buyer of last resort for block space, which we've never really had before. Um, you know, we've started to see like there's a pretty firm floor, uh, well below, uh, or sorry, pretty firm floor floor down there in like the low single digit fee, uh, fee fee rates. So uh, it, we'll see. I mean, I guess there was a block just now that was a two sat per v byte, but a lot of times when you see that now, especially with how deep the mempool is, those are pools that are like prioritizing different transactions for whatever reason. Like you know, for example, that you know a lot of a lot of pools mine their own payout. Um, their own payouts with zero fee. Um, so there will be, um, you know, cer certainly some low fee rate transactions getting through, but overall it does seem like we've gotten to a pretty deep floor of, uh, or I said, a, 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 I should say a pretty deep uh, mempool. Yeah, and of course, what one thing we really want is we do not want the mempool to clear. We want Bitcoin to be successful. So we want Bitcoin to be popular, which means we want people to submit transactions to the memory pool. And we hope there's a lot of demand for that. And if it, yep. if it never clears, that's, I think, a very good thing. If it does clear, then in the future, we could run into all kinds of security problems. So we want a deep mempool. We want more demand. And, it, and it's a great thing if the mempool never clears, in my opinion. Yeah, so Jonathan, like the, one of the points about um, you know, the, the mempool clearing, if the mempool clears, that means there's no demand for block space. And right now, that maybe isn't too much of a problem because there's a subsidy of 6.25 BTC per block, but you know, in uh, four or five halvings when the block reward is less than one, um, either Bitcoin price has to go up or there needs to be uh, more, you know, more transaction fee volume to take up that, to take up that Delta to maintain the security of the chain. Uh, that is, you know, obviously a point of contention as Bitcoin continues to, uh, continues to evolve. A lot of folks are concerned that maybe there won't be enough uh, subsidy or, or incentive for miners to continue 
uh, doing the work that they do. And that could lead to a, you know, to a point where Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin security model starts to become somewhat shaky. And that is, uh, that's a concern that I share, but, uh, you know, recently we've seen, um, you know, a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of fee activity. So. One thing, uh, to keep in mind, uh, well, first of all, uh, freaks, I know, I know you guys are a more sophisticated audience than a lot of other, uh, shows out there. But just a reminder, the way I like to visualize mempools, first of all, as Jonathan said, there's no one the mempool. Uh, every node has their own mempool. But the way I like to visualize mempools is almost a line to enter a restaurant sorted by who's willing to pay the most. Um, when, there is a, uh, when there's a wait list to enter the Bitcoin block space, uh, people have to pay higher transaction fees. And the higher your transaction fee the more priority you are given uh, by miners to be included in blocks. Um, when people usually interact with uh, mempools, they usually interact with Wiz's mempool when they're on mempool.space. And that's what we have up on the screen right now. And to Nick's point about the block that came in with uh, two sats per byte, one of the cool features that mempool.space has right now is if you click on an individual block, it will give you the expected block layout that they expected based on strictly highest fee paid transactions uh, versus what the reality was, what actual block got mined. It's a pretty cool uh, way to kind of visualize, you know, what miners are including in blocks. So guys, thank you for, um, Thank you for answering that question for me. I mean, I just full disclosure, I have a little bit of pie on my face because when we had a uh, fee pressure in 2021, I got a little bit of fee FOMO and I, you know, I said mempools were never going to clear again. And then we had one sapper bite for a long time. So um, I was a little hes hesitant to make this call, but it does feel like there is, you know, a mix of a buyer of last resort in terms of the DGEN uh, NFT people. And then also just, you know, more demand for Bitcoin block space than ever in terms of Bitcoin as a censorship resistant digital money. That's an alternative to um, all this corrupt fiat shenanigans that we that we see right now. So it should be interesting to see play out. I'm curious. So, Nick, um, you're the, the founder of Luxor. Uh, Luxor was originally not a mining pool, right? The mining pool is only yeah. relatively recent. Like the mining pool is tw late 2021, like October, 2021 was when you guys launched the mining pool. So we've been around, so we've had a BTC mining pool for, for quite a while. Um, we, you know, we started uh, not even with mining at all. We were working in 2017 on something called what I called Sci3. So there's an altcoin called SciCoin. And um, it's kind of like a decentralized storage. And we were like, let's see if we can build like an S3-like API on top of this thing. Kind of back when, you know, SIA uh, and storage and um, made safe and all these things were kind of a thing. Uh, it seemed pretty interesting, compelling. And so we started building this, uh, this you know, we started building this API that's supposed to mimic S3. But instead of being backed by servers inside of AWS, it was backed by this decentralized file storing network, which, um, of course, it didn't work uh, at the time, and it probably still doesn't work. I haven't really checked in on uh, where they're at in development now. But uh, what it did give us was 
in ex exposure to an ecosystem that had a very centralized mine, a very centralized mining ecosystem, and in that there was 98% of hash rate on a single mining pool uh, at that time for for Sidecoin. So we started like digging into how do we build a mining pool for this because at that time it seemed like they were certainly most interested in uh, or that 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 team was very interested in like figuring out how can we you know, democratize mining for this ecosystem. And that was really where we cut our teeth with mining. And the reason that's somewhat interesting is that you know, Psy is not a fork of Bitcoin code. Uh, almost every altcoin that exists out there today is like a code fork of Bitcoin, even like, you know, some of the ones you've heard of, Monero, Litecoin, um, Dogecoin, those are all uh, code forks of Bitcoin. And so there was a bunch of infrastructure for like getting those done, but they were uh, like getting mining pools built for those. But this was a completely different ecosystem. So you had to learn like from the ground up, like how do you construct a block? Um, these things are all, you know, uh, applicable to you know, whatever ecosystem you're in. And so we cut our teeth on like this new ecosystem. Um, obviously, it's not really that important anymore. But uh, over time, gathered a bunch of experience on how to build blocks, uh, propagate blocks are quick, quickly, uh, validate shares, all of the things that we need to do to build a, a Bitcoin mining ecosystem. Spent over the course of a couple of years, gathered that experience, and then you know decided to make the leap towards Bitcoin. Of course, making the leap from you know some you know small cap altcoin to Bitcoin was certainly a tough task because the stakes are much much higher. You know, you're talking about you know hobby mining and and uh, and you know uh, you know doing something in the nights and weekends, not an enterprise grade mining pool like Luxor is today. So we had to spend a lot of time getting into and learning about um, those that like how, you know, the, the construction of blocks, like the mining infrastructure, uh, and then how do we apply that that knowledge to, to Bitcoin? So uh, that was what we did. And then, yeah, pretty much have ever since just been very much focused on Bitcoin. That's why we built firmware. That's why we built Hashrate Index, which is, you know, one of the leading platforms or data platforms for learning about uh, mining incentives, mining economics, uh, basically the, the ASIC market, of course, uh, the mining machine market. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, got into even, you know, financial derivatives on top of uh, on top of Bitcoin. So that's uh, that's yeah, I mean, where that's we're at, how we cut our teeth. That's how I know you guys. I know you guys through your mining research. Uh, just to backtrack real quick and not to get bogged down in this, but uh, Finch beat me to the punch. Uh, most, most shit coins are uh, forks of Bitcoin's code, but you mentioned Monero. Monero is actually uh, crypto note based. Uh, it's a completely different uh, code base uh, just for what it's worth. But that anyway, to go back to the point, um, the fact of the matter is Luxor's mining research has been top notch. I've loved your research. Um, also, Jonathan's work at BitMEX research uh, has been amazing. Uh, best in class for a long time. So I figured having the two of you on uh, at the same time to have this conversation would be extremely interesting. Um, I'm curious, Jonathan, uh, when you look at, obviously, it seems like Luxor is kind of trying to take the lead in terms of a mining pool that is focused on inscriptions or that likes inscriptions, that likes these ordinal inscriptions. And, and for you to listen to the conversation I had with Casey uh, a couple weeks back, you should definitely go and listen to that after this. Um, I'm curious, like Jonathan, when you, when you look at, at the new hype around inscriptions, how do you think about that? And how with with regard to how it changes minor incentives and how how miners are interacting with the network. Um, 
Well, I think the first thing to say about inscriptions is, as Nick has said, is that it's boosted demand for block space and therefore uh, boosted minor revenue. And that's a very good and positive thing. And I mean, that doesn't change minor incentives that much other than it just being very positive. I think the only kind of downside or potential negative is that some of the inscriptions are valid transactions, but non-standard transactions. So um, what that means is you can't broadcast the inscription to the Bitcoin memory pool. I think that's if the the image you're inscribing is over um, 500 KB, then it becomes a non-standard transaction. So in Bitcoin, you have this kind of thing where you've got policy rules and standardness rules. So if it violates policy, the block is invalid. And if it violates standardness, it just means your node won't relay it. If you send it directly to the miner, um, the miner can still include that transaction in the block. So when Luxor made the four megabyte um, inscription, that was um, a valid transaction, but non-standard. So I mean, there are some kind of incentives issues there because it means that um, you don't broadcast it to the mempool. So it's not kind of this open competition with all miners trying to include it. And instead, the miner has to kind of communicate out of band with the person who's doing the inscription. Um, so yeah, there's a potential kind of weakness there. And I mean, this has sparked some debate inside the kind of technical technical community kind of who are reevaluating the whole concept of why do we have standardness and policy rules? Why are they different? Maybe this example illustrates that we shouldn't really have that distinction uh, to the extent we do and that any valid transaction should also be a standard transaction. I don't know what your thoughts on that issue are. Nick. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the very first questions that was raised around the, um, you know, around the big block or the big wizard, as people call it, um, was that, hey, what, well, why, why wouldn't my node have picked up that block? And as you know, that transaction, that, that's a really good point is that you're, it's a valid transaction. It's just that it is a DOS uh, a denial of service attack vector. And so Bitcoin Core has introduced these policy filters. So that way, you're not picking up, you know, you know, somebody could spam four megabyte transactions your, your mempool would get filled with them and then regular transactions may be getting pushed out. Um, so that could be, that could be, you know, that's an example of, um, of why like policy and consensus don't actually add up. Um, you know, LeBitcoin and a couple of other, I think LeBitcoin is really the only one, but they don't have those policy filters. Uh, and so that's an interesting point um, because those, pol yeah, because those policy filters do make it a little bit weird um, in that you do have to do that out of band uh, type of interaction to get your, your transaction mined. Um, I can see both sides. I, I don't have a very strong opinion on whether policy filter should be adjusted or if that should be like a person making a very specific and targeted um, change to their core node to accept those types of, uh, those types of transactions. Um, it does potentially introduce like some, like, like you said, some weird, um incentives where you know these types of payments have to be uh paid out out of band um and and that's you know that is maybe not 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 ideal because then you know standard mempool mechanics don't don't apply i mean to be clear this is not the first instance of out of band payments uh for transactions in fact if we start to see mempools being more full is when exactly when, when we see this waitlist start to expand is when we have historically seen out-of-band payments. I mean, I remember even as early as 2017, 
Uh, we saw people who maybe paid too low of a fee. And then as a result, they wanted to get their transaction confirmed. And so then they would go directly to a mining pool um, and then pay right. a miner directly to get their to get their transaction included, right? Yeah, I think in 2017, via BTC launched a service where you could go to their website, you'd give your transaction ID, and if it wasn't confirmed, you could pay them via credit card and they would <laughs> uh, mine your transaction. Yep. So these out-of-band things have been going on for a while, but yeah, they are a, a potential kind of weakness for Bitcoin because, of course, it encourages mining centralization because via BTC, because of their their service where they took credit card payments could earn a higher revenue, then more miners could choose that pool and then that could encourage centralization because they have that infrastructure in place. And the same yep. thing with the out-of-band ordinal inscriptions. If everyone who's using, who's doing inscriptions always contacts the same mining pool out-of-band, that mining pool could become more profitable, more successful, and that's uh, centralization risk. I don't think it's yep. a major risk for Bitcoin, but yeah, that's certainly the, the main disadvantage of these out-of-band uh, structures. Yeah, that's a that's effectively MEV. That was kind of what was happening on ETH when you know when ETH started going through. Um, you know, when when DeFi started getting really uh, popular and folks were doing a lot of uh, you know DGEN stuff with these contracts, they were willing to pay uh, higher, you know, willing to pay you know out of band fees or whatever, and also needed like a private mempool. Um, and so that was like one of the re one of the things we started to see pop up in Flashbots. If anybody's familiar with Flashbots, was um, well, that was one of the one of the repercussions or the consequences of this occurring. Um, as you mentioned, you know, those those are called transaction fee accelerators. It's not just by BTC that has them. There's a lot of those that have existed throughout the years, and you know, they continue to you know they continue to operate. Maybe not as much as they used to because RBF is pretty prolific now. Um, RBF being replaced by fee, so you can uh, replace a transaction that exists in the mempool and uh, bump the fee. Uh, so it's not as ubiquitous as it used to be, but it definitely was something that was out there and existed for a long time. So out-of-band payments are not new. Uh, they've definitely been around for a long time. And then there's also like a subset you, I've heard of, of, of more like more, um, you know, folks that are trying to do like private transactions where they issue a transaction directly to a particular mining pool, but don't want it broadcast all over the network. That's another type of um, you know, reason there would be out-of-band payments or, or out-of-band transactions that are out of the standard mempool flow. Um, but those are much more rare and not as common. And I think that uh, I think the real the real like the real delta here or the real piece that people are missing is the um, like is that out-of-band out-of-band payment for um, prioritizing different transactions as well as you know whether they're for acceleration or for um, you know, getting around the policy filters. Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, guys, I'm not your typical host. If you want to respond to each other, feel free to respond directly to each other. Don't feel like I have to um, prompt okay. a question every time. Um, I probably should have told you guys that before I started the show, but also I'm not a typical host, so I didn't tell you that ahead of time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm curious, like, let's let's dive into this a little bit, because you mentioned this term minor extracted value. Um, people that are, you know, in ETH land already know what this term is. Um, but maybe people that are focused on Bitcoin only aren't really familiar with it. Jonathan, you want to like just give us a little primer on, on what MEV 
refers to? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think MEV can be quite a big, complex topic. Um, so the first time I thought about MEV was actually way back in 2014. And I remember this because at the time, you could bet on the uh, FIFA World Cup, which was in Brazil, um, on the Bitcoin blockchain using Counterparty. Um, so I remember, I think the World Cup final was um, Argentina versus Germany. And I, I placed a bet on Argentina, which meant I broadcast my transaction to the memory pool, which was the counterparty interpreted as a bet on Argentina winning with a certain odds. And then I remember thinking to myself, well, hang on a minute. What happens if Germany score? Because they could score at any time. The match was ongoing. So they could score within the 10 minutes before the Bitcoin block was mined, before my bet had reached the blockchain. If that happened, what I would want to do is, of course, withdraw my bet. But then I thought, well, hang on. What if the miner is who mines the block is also watching the football game and they're also um, looking at these transactions in the mempool, they could match my bet because Germany's just scored the goal. Germany's more likely to win. If the miner is doing all of this, watching the football match and looking at the mempool and having all the sophisticated systems, they could stop me cancelling my bet uh, and match against me, bet on Germany, and then they would you know, be an advantage. And you know, MEV didn't exist at the time in 2014. Um, the terminology didn't anyway, but that's, that's kind of what it was. Um, and I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's like miners analyzing the markets um, as well as mining, see, interpreting the, the meaning of those transactions. If, they, if it's not a standard thing, if it's not someone paying from A to B, but they're doing something more complicated, like betting, financial trading, swapping tokens. Um, yeah, and, and the miner can extract value. Now, the... MEV has become very uh, prominent on Ethereum, uh, and almost all of that is arbitrage. It's occurring normally on Uniswap, so when people like kind of swap one token for another, and the the block producers or miners were not only were they producing blocks, some of them were also analyzing Uniswap, looking at live kind of price feeds and all the exchanges, seeing if a price moved, and then front running someone who submitted an order. And of course the Consequences of this are very negative. MEV is very bad for the user experience. It degrades the new user experience. For me, betting on the football match, it meant you know I got inferior execution. And for people trading on Uniswap, they get worse execution because of MEV. Um, so that's one of the kind of reasons that MEV is a bad thing. And when you construct your you know contracts or systems, you should try to reduce the opportunity for people to conduct MEV such that your users have a better experience. So while MEV in and of itself is bad, um, you could also look at the high value of MEV on Ethereum, which I think is about almost a billion dollars now. And that is a positive signal about the success of Ethereum. Because Wait, that's a billion dollars in, in what time period? I think since, since, since Ethereum's, all of Ethereum's history, I think. Got it. Um, so you can look at that that number and you say well that's an indication that ethereum is very successful right because um it shows that ethereum is a very rich environment with a lot of trading activity there's a lot of value and therefore there's a lot of mev to extract so that's why it leads to some kind of confusions with people saying is mev good or is mev bad i would argue that mev in and of itself is a bad thing but it's a positive indicator um, about the success of a platform so then what happened with MEV is um, MEV kind of quickly rose to prominence in Ethereum in kind of 
November 2020, kind of just after the so-called summer of DeFi. And as a result, this caused a big crisis in Ethereum because what was happening was was that the 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 miners were searching the Ethereum blockchain for MEV opportunities. Once one miner found it, uh, broadcast that transaction, the other one saw that and they copied with a higher fee. So then there was this massive kind of fee war with everyone trying to conduct MEV and increase the fees to kind of in a kind of scorched earth war against the other people doing MEV. Uh, and this caused a big crisis in Ethereum where the fees kind of massively spiked at the start of 2021. And I think Nick mentioned Flashbots and Flashbots was the a solution to this or a, something that mitigated this problem because what Flashbots did was um, create a kind of centralized MEV infrastructure where the searchers could search for these MEV opportunities, submit it to the Flashbot server, so that, and then they weren't then competing against other, other searches in, in a fee war. So this kind of resolved that fee crisis. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of what happened. And then so the kind of negatives of that is people then argued, well, Flashbots itself is centralized. So whilst you've solved or mitigated the problem, you have you know, caused centralization. Um, and then, so there's often a kind of argument between Bitcoiners and Ethereum, whereas Bitcoiners will point to the MEV and saying, look at Ethereum, they've got a huge problem, they've got a huge MEV, and then their solution to this was centralization. Whereas in defense of Ethereum, they would say, um, well, you, first of all, the fact that we have all this MEV is an indication of success, um, and we're kind of working our way through solving this problem with these highly complicated systems uh, like flashbots, so we've, you know, the problems come and we're trying to solve it, whereas Bitcoin hasn't got reached this problem yet. Um, so yeah, I don't know if, if uh, Nick, you want to come in and talk about MEV because it's quite a big topic. Yeah, I I love MEV. So now that you've invoked ETH, maybe I'm a little less nervous because I was like trying to dance around MEV and maybe my like altcoin history because I know the Citadel Hornets are going to come after this stuff. But uh, now that you've invoked invoked ETH, like we can talk about MEV pretty extensively. Like MEV A is, like you said, terrible for user experience, but phenomenal for miners. Uh, and so it's like this weird competing uh, sort of uh, dynamic, uh, which is really weird, uh, but also super interesting and makes mining really, really interesting. Like mining on ETH was crazy interesting because of these mechanics. Like you effectively had like high frequency traders, like folks that are able to build very sophisticated trading strategies coming in, issuing these transactions uh, and, and trying to, you know, affect, you know, more or less trade against each other in real time. It's pretty crazy. Uh, and, and it was wild to see like that stuff play out in the mempool. It's like, the most competitive thing you've seen. And then, you know, there were the pools that were building either on Flashbots, which, um, you know, the ETH community somewhat rallied around is that's like, okay, that's the okay way to do MEV. Like people are going to do MEV. Like let's figure out like a standardized protocol for this and, you know, try to push pools that direction. But there were pools that were building like their own MEV implementations uh, and they were out competing Flashbots in various ways, which was, you know, really interesting to see because now like, okay, as a miner, I have to make a decision. Do I go mine the, the more profitable pool or do I go to another pool uh, that's doing like what the foundation, like the foundation and like 
what they say is like the proper way to mine? Should I go mine there and make less and be, you know, like virtue signal? Or do I go be purely profit driven and go mine at the pool that has a better MEV strategy? The same thing is somewhat occurred, has somewhat occurred in Bitcoin back in, you know, when we mined the big block, we mined the big wizard, which they do call it the big wizard, by the way, Doc. Doc Grew says, I dare say no one calls it the big wizard, but they do call it the big wizard. Um, <clears throat> and at least that's what the taproot wizards call it. I don't know who else you talk to, but um, that is, uh, you know, right after that, a lot of folks told, like, that was when... Wait, um, the to be clear, to be clear, because most of my audience is not familiar with the Big Wizard. This was a four meg NFT inscription of a yes. the famous wizard, you know, the magic internet money wizard of Bitcoin. And you guys yeah. mined it mm -hmm. out of band. And the whole the whole block, the entire block was this single inscription. Continue. Yes, exactly. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so apologies for uh, the, the assumption there. But yes, that's what it, exactly what happened. It had to be out of band. And so like Udi, Udi Wertheimer and Eric Wall came and were like, hey, we kind of want to do this thing. This was back around inscription number like 400 or so. Um, for context, we're at like 550, 550,000 now. Like that's a, you know, it's only been four weeks, but it's a long time ago. Uh, it's anyway, right after that happened is when, you know, this started, this ordinal thing really started to kick off. And, uh, you know, Luke Dash Jr. put out his Ord Disrespector patch. And we started getting pressure from folks. Like I was on spaces talking about this stuff, like how interesting, um, you know, this is going to make mining and how this is going to change the dynamic, et cetera. Um, that was, you know, th that was starting, to, you know, that was really like the kickoff. Uh, and so we were on these spaces talking about this and somebody was like, hey, you, you know, you're a mining pool. NFTs on Bitcoin are uh, anti-Bitcoin. You're attacking the network. Um, this is against the, uh, you know, this is against the ethos of Bitcoin. You should be running the patch. And I said, okay, let me, let's, let's like, uh, let's straw man this. So let's, let's, let's chat this through. I'm out here talking about this. None of the other mining companies have really been at all public about what their strategy is with regard to ordinals. Um, let's talk about this. Okay. I, you know, I virtue signal, I, I put in the patch, I filter out inscriptions from my mempool. Um, now my mining pool is less profitable than all the other mining pools. And that's because I'm, I'm virtue signaling that, that inscriptions are bad. Um, so now all the miners that are on my pool, I'm doing them a disservice by not giving them the most profitable transactions to mine and thus maximizing their reward, which is what mining pools are here to do. Like we're here to service our miners. Um, and that's you know what we were doing. And so if, you know, I, I, I put that in uh, and, he, and, and the argument then was, well, you should do it because it's what's best for Bitcoin. And if you have a, a long, you know, a short time preference, or sorry, a long time preference, then you should be, you know, you should be running this because it's what's best for Bitcoin. Um, and I said, well, what if, if I turn this on now, I won't get to long time preference because my pool will be dead because nobody will mine at my pool because nobody wants to make less. And that's just the, that's just the way miners operate. So that's kind of where this like all, all this like MEV stuff started to come to Bitcoin. And the reason we, you know, uh, Jonathan, the reason you chatted about MEV and why it was important in ETH is because we're starting to see that in Bitcoin. And it's really interesting. And it kind of started around the time of the big wizard, um, which is around inscription 400, maybe five weeks ago. Um, and and so, yeah, this has been super like really dynamic ever since. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't necessarily think these inscriptions or out-of-band fees should necessarily be classified as MEV, or at least it's a different kind of MEV than kind of the arbitraging. Yeah. Um, it has a lot of similar characteristics in that, you know, it 
there's the the risk that individual miners could become more profitable and gain market share and it could cause mining centralization but i i was thinking about it and i don't think inscriptions ordinals or nfts are that conducive to mev compared to say uniswap or or ave or something because you can't really front run an nft because they're they're non-fungible so Right. If, the, if the market changes and like the price of the NFT suddenly will rally twenty percent, um, you can't really front run that because you can't like buy one and then sell it back to the bidder um, quickly um, by front running and, and if you're the miner because you know you're there's a kind of an individual market for each NFT. So in that kind of the classic or the more like kind of concise yeah. way of defining MEV, I don't think is that applicable to uh, inscriptions although you know it could in certain circumstances if you're doing a kind of new mint of an inscription in certain conditions that could lead to a small amount of mev but i th i mean i could be wrong but i think it's very unlikely however successful inscriptions are i don't think we're going to have kind of hundreds of millions of dollars of mev on bitcoin i think just because the dynamics or structure of nft right. markets are not as conducive to mev as say uh, of a of uniswap or something like that yeah, no, that's certainly true. Um, that's certainly true. We could start, you know, we could start to see maybe like um, maybe a world where like PSBTs become, you know, in, there's like a, a mining pool that puts out like a centralized PSBT uh, marketplace, and then they're they're the ones that are like able to extract the value from those PSBTs that then you know they create and craft. But um, you know, that would be I, I don't know. That, that's a pretty far fetched uh, sort of scenario so yeah in your like in the definite like what we what we know is mev from you know our like from our eth uh from the eth land is definitely not what's happening in bitcoin but it is you know somewhat you know it it just all comes down to like mining economics and you know we we need to maximize you know our mining reward for our miners and uh and the way that you do that is by capturing the highest value transactions and if you're trying to filter out the highest value, you know, some some transactions because they don't fit into your ethos of what Bitcoin is, uh, you're then, you know, more or less virtue signaling that, you know, and not actually, uh, how do I say, not actually maximizing profit, so. Um, yeah, I, I certainly, I mean, I, I definitely agree with you there that, you know, we should, if, if a transaction is valid, it doesn't matter what it is, what the ethos is, the a sensible mining policy is to try to maximize income. And we right. should you know, develop code that is incentive compatible or consistent with miners trying right. to make the most profits, because that's ultimately how the miners might behave uh, in many scenarios anyway. So we might as well build, build code that enables that. And that right. was the same kind of argument that was in favor of um, replaced by fee, right? The argument right. was, is that replaced by fee even though because i mean i think when replaced by fee was introduced it was very controversial i think this debate happened in around 2015 there was this old yeah. policy called first seen safe so the first transaction uh the miner saw by default was the one they included in the block um, whereas if they saw a conflicting transaction even if it had a higher fee they would not put that in their block but that's not incentive compatible because to maximize earnings you should switch to the conflicting transaction with the highest fee rate that gives you the most profit. So that's one of the main reasons, you know, RBF has become more popular. So it's a similar argument there that is that uh, even if it damages the user experience, we have to accept that's the reality of how miners are going to behave. Um, and therefore, that's what we should, we should allow miners or encourage miners to 
do whatever increases the maximum revenue in the short term by constructing a block to maximize their earnings. Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, miners are, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, actually, I would say it is fortunately because that is the way the Bitcoin, you know, that is the way the Bitcoin consensus mechanism works is that miners are short term focused. They're focused on the very next block, which is, you know, 10, every 10 minutes. Uh, they don't think they, in, they, they don't have to think in that super long term. As soon as you become, you know, as soon as you start thinking long term, you're more thinking with a holder strategy, which is different than a mining strategy. And those are two, I don't want to say different. They're definitely parallel, uh, but they are, you know, they're certainly not intersecting uh, as much as, you know, say, um, I'm trying to think of, of a good analog here. Um, like oil producers, when they produce, you know, they, they produce oil, they immediately need to, they need to capitalize and maximize the value of the oil that they receive right now, because that's their, you know, that's what they do is produce oil. Now, oil consumers, which would be in this case, like the, I think maybe the holders, maybe this, this analog is not going to, not going to do very well. But um, the idea is that the producers need to be maximizing profit right now, because you don't know how long that profit's going to exist. Um, you know, oil, oil producers, maybe, maybe a good, maybe a better example would be like, on a depletion curve, if you're, you know, if you're pulling out oil too quickly, um, you know, it makes your, like your long, you know, long term, your, your, your oil well depletes more quickly uh, if you're pulling it out right now. But you have to really think about what is your, what is your margin right now, build a business on how things are based right now. And you can't really think about, well, you know, if I pull out all this oil super quick, um, maybe my depletion curve, ex, you know, is accelerated or something into, um, you know, three or four years down the road, um, most most you know oil wells, you can't think that way. Same way with uh, with miners, you can't really think that way either. You have to think about what are the mining economics right now. How do I build my business and maximize my profit right now? Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think that's very interesting because I was making similar analogies back in 2015 with gold mining and oil oil producing in the kind of first in safe versus RBF debates, um, yeah. and I think. Uh, a, a good way of thinking about it is that, you know, the oil price can be volatile, the gold price can be volatile. If the oil price goes down, the, the profit margins of the oil producers can be very slim. And same with the Bitcoin right. miners, right? The If the Bitcoin price falls, their profit margins can be very slim. It's a very competitive industry. And they may have debt. They may be struggling to survive. They may be struggling to repay that debt. And they yeah. are going to need to maximize their short-term earnings. They don't have the luxury of thinking, well, this theoretically may damage Bitcoin in 10, 20 years time um, in some scenarios, and therefore they will want to construct the block to maximize their revenue. Um, and yeah, I think yeah. it's very interesting to kind of compare it to kind of oil and gold and especially the super cycle that those commodities can experience. Yeah. Um, and Bitcoin can have that same kind of long term cycle. And then which could mean that, you know, Bitcoin, the Bitcoin mining industry is not always going to be healthy and highly cash generative and all the companies having strong balance sheets. And, you know, we've been through in the past, I don't know, a year or six months, we've seen a lot of bankruptcies, a lot of companies fail, a lot of companies with a lot of debt. And I think it's ridiculous to ask them not to maximize the revenue in their blocks. Yep. <clears throat> I agree. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned super cycles. I realize also another another point here that's completely as an aside. I'm at a huge disadvantage to somebody with a British accent. Like you just I just naturally sound dumber. But uh, but, you know, the going back to your super cycle point, um, 
I do think that like Bitcoin has super cycles the same way that oil has super cycles, really good analog to, and they're, they're, they're different timeframes, right? Because Bitcoin's only uh, 12 or whatever, would be for 14 years old, um, where oil has been being produced for, you know, over a hundred years, gold's been mined for thousands of years. Um, so those markets are much more established. And so their super cycles are probably quite a lot longer. Um, and also macro environment changes significantly, but we can see, you know, basically the same thing that happened to miners in 2022 happened to oil producers in the early 2010s. Um, you know, there was a huge run up in oil in, uh, in oil price post uh, global global financial crisis, which caused billions, if not trillions of dollars of investment into new oil, uh, you know, into new oil production, uh, both domestic and abroad. And over time, like we saw that that price, you know, has basically can, has just cratered ever since that point. And so a lot of oil producers have been going out of business. It's, it's been a much slower uh, a much slower process than Bitcoin, but we saw that ex you know that exact exact same super cycle play out in in oil, uh, you know, in the early 2010s, and is now somewhat. It looked like it was going to be somewhat revived maybe last year, but then of course uh, global macro definitely shifted against them as well. Um, you know, I mean, the I guess the absolute bottom for oil was uh, was actually negative pricing, which hopefully I don't think we'll ever get to negative pricing in Bitcoin, but. Um, you know, it's, it was a pretty interesting, you know, pretty interesting to see. You can definitely tie these two industries together in a lot of different ways. I mean, I want to jump back to minor extracted value real quick because okay. um, it is a pretty important topic. So like the way I look at it is at its core, it's, it's profit maximizing behavior uh, of miners yep. trying to, to extract as much profit as possible. Now, this is what we expect from Bitcoin miners historically. One of the cool parts about Bitcoin in general is the way the incentives are aligned. Uh, you, don't act, you don't need people to act in a benevolent way. They act greedy. And as a result of their greed and their profit maximization, uh, Bitcoin is more secure as a result. Now, when it comes to miner extracted value, though, the argument against it would be and is that we want to keep this protocol as simple as possible so it's predictable and stable. And minor extracted value is based on this premise of almost an external reason. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a miner using external data that, that will create profitability for them that is separate from the transaction fee that, that people's mempools see, uh, that the gossip layer sees, and that, it, that is separate from you know, the minor subsidy that everyone knows. Um, this is an this is an external data point, and and so recently, I mean, you you mentioned uh, the quite large NFT you had, um, but recently there was I, I try and not pay attention to this stuff, but ultimately uh, I rely on Bitcoin on a day to day basis, and it's hard to ignore. There was some kind of NFT sale or something where like people needed to get into a certain block, right? And if you, if you weren't aware of that NFT sale. Um, I think it was done by the the Bored Apes guys like Yuga Labs, but I'm not sure because I wasn't exactly paying attention to it. But if you that you had to get into a specific block, am I correct? And like as a result, there was some people I think you were alleging on Twitter that there was some shenanigans around this block. And like, yeah, there was. Can we go into that? Yeah, a yeah, yeah. Bit? So, so just for uh, just so we're all on the same page. Yuga's this wasn't related to Yuga. This was D Gods. Um, D Gods is the number one NFT on Solana. Um, they had a bunch of NFT like NFTs from Solana that they burned. I don't know how that works, but they burned them, meaning I guess they can no longer be spent. And so the lore was that they were going to bring them back to life on Bitcoin, which they did. 
in a in a what we call a sequential mint. Um, that was another bespoke block that Luxor produced, basically taking all of those inscriptions, putting them into a single block, so that when they were mined, they all had sequential mint IDs, and it was very like aesthetic for the for the art people. Um, so that's what happened. And then what what, what that's that happened long ago. That happened like well long ago in Ordinal Land is like two weeks ago, but um, feels like three years ago. Uh, the what 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 you're talking about is the auction process. So they uh, Friday afternoon uh, or late evening, um, they had a there was a, a block. They said at block height X, uh, we're going to open the auction. And so X plus one, you have to get your transaction into X plus one, or it'll be the first 500 transactions that uh, that complete the auction. Um, and you know the, the the thesis was that most likely there will be you know the entire sale will happen within one block which was the case. And so that one block ended up having, you know, three and a half Bitcoin worth of added fees to it as a result of this kind of war uh, or race to get in. And so that's kind of the precedent. Jonathan, anything I missed there you want to add? Um, no, I've, I mean, yeah, I wasn't that much aware of that. But yeah, I think that these are all kind of, yeah, an MEV type, it's difficult to class, know whether they like, meet the definition of MEV or not, but they're MEV type activities and, or out of band transactions or a race to kind of mint your NFT within a certain um, time horizon. But yeah, I, I wasn't following the, that particular thing probably to the same degree you were. Yeah, so that was- All um, I know is yes. if, you go, if you go on mempool.space, there's one block that has an insane amount of fees in it. And then the blocks on yep. both sides of it do not, um, right. which is in-, in in his, uh, before we had these inscriptions or not, you would never see that. That it makes no logical sense if you're not paying attention to the external data. That is, this there's an yeah. NFT inscription or whatever going on. Mint auction, auction, yeah, auction, auction. It, you know, I, it could have been, uh, you know, I could have been selling off 500 Charizard cards that I ship you in the mail, unrelated to anything, you know, with relate to, related to the ordinal or the inscription that had been done long prior. They were sitting in a cold wallet. Um, the, the, what was actually happening was the auction process. So you needed to be, uh, one of the first 500, uh, transactions to complete. Um, and so that's why folks were racing to get their, uh, their transaction in there. So that's, that's what, that was the mechanic that caused such a run. On, okay. So on I see that. Yeah. I would say that that is, yeah, a, a bad auction process. If you're saying it's one of the first 500 <laughs> transactions on chain, because you're encouraging MEV, which is. As, which is bad for users, but probably advantages block producers, pools, and miners. So if you're designing the process, you want to benefit users. So yeah, I, I would say that that's not good to choose. So the, um, uh, it wasn't actually, so th there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a, um, a nuance there, which is, you know, and so this is, I mean, this is pretty common in, uh, in, in NFT land. I, I didn't, I didn't really know this, but like the way they do mints over there is, is it, they want, I think they kind of want the hype and the chaos. They need like, you know, uh, uh, what, what would you call it? Like, you need an, an impetus to act. And so there needs to be like a compressed it's timeline. It's induced for FOMO. Like to happen. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so that is like the reason you put like such a, a strict like timeline on things uh, is it's very, very purposeful. And so the mechanic here, so, actually, so one, one nuance yeah, of on. the mechanic here was that the, it was actually based on mempool time. Uh, so it was when your transaction was seen in the mempool first. 
and of course that was um you know there, there's there can be like a second or two of of latency around the world but in general like it didn't really matter what fee you put uh and we you know the, the dgods team tried to portray that message or, or convey that message um that you don't you're not going to need to put you know a million sat per vbyte um probably only need about 100 maybe 150 to be included um but really what what it broke boiled down to was people don't understand how txvs work in bitcoin uh in eth you would you know the higher your fee the more priority you get in the block and so you end up getting ordered higher and that results in uh you know that results in you maybe getting the mint where somebody else doesn't in this case really all that mattered was the time that your uh, your transaction showed up in the mempool okay so that's isn't that pretty gameable? what's that isn't that gameable uh, probably. I mean, all Look, whose mempool are we going point. by? Are they're going by D God's mempool? They're going by their own mempool? The, the node, yeah, the D God's node. Which, of course, they did, I don't think they published like the the node ID or anything like that. So it wasn't like people okay. could like peer up with it. So that that process seems fine then, right? Because that's not that's not necessarily causing MEV. You just broadcast your transaction, and whenever they receive it first, they'll give you an award. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. You're not. Um, you're not. It wasn't. It, it was clear to anybody that was paying attention that this was going to be a large fee event because, for whatever reason, like the message of not needing to have you know a million sat per vbyte didn't resonate because there were multiple transactions that had like a hundred thousand plus sat per vbyte in them and paid you know thousands of dollars in fees. Um, yeah. But you know, is is yeah. Like looking here. Um, yeah, there's a couple that paid like over a thousand dollars in fee for uh for a wow. for a yeah. Here's one that was ten million uh ten million fee rate. Oh, I'm sorry, forty thousand. But forty thousand snap per byte. I mean, but that might not. Uh, it just depends on on how people want to set up these mints, right? Like we could see ones that are based on on confirmations or not based on are based on mempool time, I guess. Of someone's mempool, yeah. who knows whose mempool. Um, in the future, we could see all sorts of different schemes here. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I don't really want to get hung up on like, like the semantics of what is EV and what isn't MEV. Yeah. But if sure. Jonathan's book, The Block Size War, uh, one of the main, the, the two main reasons the Block Size War was fought, uh, at least from the winning side perspective, was to prevent node centralization and mining centralization. And if you increase bandwidth requirements yeah. by increasing block size, um, you end up with more node centralization and you end up with more mining centralization because if the blocks are larger on the node size, uh, bandwidth costs go up and accessibility uh, goes down. So it's, it's harder for people to run nodes. It's more expensive for people to run nodes. And on the mining side, uh, there's more latency in terms of block propagation, which helps centralized miners and results in more mining centralization. And why don't we want mining centralization? We don't want mining centralization because then it makes the network less secure and we will have one pool or, or two pools that are in cahoots or whatever, get more and more uh, share of the hash rate. Now, when I look at something like this, I see a lot of concerns in terms of incentivizing miner centralization because regardless of how this mint is set up, if there is one block that has way more fees than all the blocks around it, all of a sudden, and it, there were some allegations that shenanigans happened here and that there were malicious miners. It looks like after the fact there wasn't, but that doesn't mean there won't be in the future. It, it, 
enters, all of a sudden it adds this stronger incentive for selfish mining where miners are withholding blocks and releasing the blocks yep. all at the same time. It incentivizes reorgs, which, which encourage miner centralization. Um, I'm curious like what you guys think here. If It seems to me that it, it is obvious that this kind of situation will lead to more centralization among miners and mining pools. Um, well, yeah, I, I think MEV can be very centralized. They have a very big centralization pressure, and that's very negative. And you certainly saw that on ETH, right? Because you had to be basically a trading shop, and you had to have like hundreds of millions of dollars of capital to exploit the arbitrage opportunities. And that was a, like a major problem. I don't think we're anywhere near like that on Bitcoin. And I, I don't necessarily think uh, like an auction for like an inscription mint or whatever uh, should be classified as MEV or has any of those kind of incentive problems. I mean, it, it could just be they're bidding loads of fees uh, and that isn't a unique problem. Just yeah, Yes, we have the real risk if there's high fees, but that's no different to any other kind of high fee environment, right? If every block had like 200 Bitcoin in fees, uh, whatever was causing that, there's there's an incentive to to reorg and try to get those fees. It, it doesn't necessarily make a difference yeah. whether that's whatever that is. If it's you know people in emerging markets sending thousands of pounds across the world, or if it's people bidding for ordinals or whatever these ordinal yeah. auctions were, I think it can it has the same kind of dynamics. I wouldn't classify that as an MEV related problem. It's just a normal problem of of high fees, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you, you make a really good point. So one, one thing I want to talk about just before we get there is like when you talk about the block size. So I don't know if anybody knows this, but um, ESV is like seven terabytes. Their blockchain is like seven terabytes because it's been just filled with like random shit. Um, so A, like I don't even have, it's like you want to go figure out how to get a seven terabyte plus drive to sync a, a BSV node. Like, come on, that's like insane. Um, and their mining, the mining is in, insanely centralized there. There's two pools. Uh, one of them is trying to be like the like good BSV pool that mines all of their, um, you know, mines their super huge blocks, which are like multiple gigabytes. Uh, but that pool is massively unprofitable compared to this competing pool, which just mines empty blocks because they don't want to take all of the, they don't want to take all of the time to like construct that block template, which has two gigabytes worth of random shit uh, transactions in it. So this is like, on the extreme end of what could be happening in Bitcoin if we allowed big blocks to go through. So I'm very happy that we have this very concise, very precious block space that is not, you know, I think they, they I think their block size is two gigabytes. So imagine two gigabytes being added to your node every uh, every 10 minutes. I think um, it's so four, we, four, gigabyte, four gigabyte block size limit on BSV. Four gigabytes, okay. Two to four. I've tried to sync a node, so I, I know very well about yeah, the uh, periods. At one point, they had like 24 gigabyte blocks in a row. It's crazy. Yep. Uh, it's crazy. I, I, and so anyway, you see like what happens to the centralization there. There's two, there's, there's only two pools, which have like very little hash rate. And one of them is like, they call it attacking the network because it's, uh, it's basically mining empty blocks. And the other one is like mining all of the transactions, but is massively unprofitable because it can't keep up. So those are the things that you have to look forward to if you increase block size. Um, so let's not do that. Back to the point that you were making about MEV. I don't really think, yeah, you're right. This isn't in like the traditional sense MEV. It's not on-chain activity that's been trying to be extracted via strategies, um, just like you mentioned. It's not really trying to like reconstruct the mempool or, or trying to construct the mempool in such a way that your transactions um, are, are 
you're able to, you know, sandwich folks or things like that. So like in, in, in ETH, the transactions are executed in order. So each of like the top transaction gets executed, um, that sort of thing. Uh, so if you wanted to sandwich somebody's order as a mining pool, you could see their order and then put your transactions on either side of them to either add or remove liquidity, let their transaction occur, and then add or remove liquidity at the end of it. So that's like classic MEV, which is what Jonathan's mentioning. What we're seeing, here, what I'm seeing here is just like dynamism in the, the mempool, uh, which certainly is something we need to sort out because this is coming. Like in a couple of halvings, what happened on Friday is going to become the normal where transaction fees across multiple blocks will vary by hundreds of percent. You know, the, the transaction fee, you know, let's imagine, um, you know, let's imagine four halvings into the future where, you know, trend, you know, Bitcoin subsidy is maybe less, you know, it's less than one, one Bitcoin. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, four or five BTC worth of, of fee, <clears throat> the, you know, in a per block, maybe we have a long block that's an hour long and the mempool gets saturated with super high transaction fee. And then the next block is very low. The, dynamism between those two blocks profitability from a mining pool perspective is going to be incredibly high, meaning the, the, the long block will have a lot of transaction fee and will be very, very valuable. And the block that comes right after it's very slow, will be very low value. Um, and so in that way, we need to figure out, like, does the consensus mechanism work in that type of environment? And I think that, you know, Jonathan and I, we're, it sounds like we're just about to get to the point where we start talking about what happened on Friday and how that uh, breaks down for um, for Bitcoin in the future. I think this is a snapshot of what we get to look forward to in, you know, say three or four halvings. Um, yeah, exactly. I, I'd agree to the problem of let, big high fee on blocks is, is what we're going to face when, when the block reward mm -hmm. comes down. And I think I, I wouldn't, it's, it's not necessarily ordinals or NFTs creating that problem. It's, it's just a problem we're going to face. And I think there's a variety of things we can do to mitigate that. And uh, the main thing is, of course, we want Bitcoin to be more successful. We want a vibrant usage of the blockchain, all different kinds of uses, ordinals, transactions, e-commerce, savings, like derivatives. And if, if, if there's all these multiple uses, then that will kind of smooth out um, fee, fee yeah. revenue more. And another important thing, which is, you know, was when we added lock time into Bitcoin uh, several years ago, because you add a, a, a lock time to your transaction, so it's only valid you know, from the current block height forward. And that, right. therefore, if, if you use lock time, that's one of the big kind of mitigations against this this risk, because it means you can't kind of re, they can't reorg you back into the past and still snipe your fee. Um, and that's one of the main kind of defenses against this problem. So, yeah, they're, they're, uh, this is one of the yeah, a big challenge Bitcoin's facing. Will all these incentives work in a few years time uh, after all these halvings? I don't, I don't see inscriptions as contributing to the problem. I think I see it more as, part of the solution because it's just creating more demands. Yeah. Um, and, I, yeah. and I, I'm not, I'm, I, I say problem. I'm not sure it's a problem. It's a, it's a thing that exists. And if it is a problem, let's expose it now. If it's not, um, you know, that's, that's great. But like, I would rather expose these types of, you know, these problems, potential issues for us to, you know, to cover now than, you know, in the, in the future when Bitcoin is potentially a reserve currency or, you know, is being used, you know, in, in a way like, that we all expect and hope uh, for it for it too. So I, I would much rather get to the bottom of this now. Um, I had another point about mempool saturation, but I don't remember where I was headed with that. So go ahead, Jonathan. Anything else on uh, on this? I uh, will. Yes, do, I think you're mentioning. Yeah, go on. Go ahead. Go. I mean, do, so do you guys? Is this a minor centralization risk? 
I think in, in in general, people paying higher fees for inscriptions and having these auctions and all these spikes in fees, I would say is not a minor centralization risk. I think the out of bound stuff is a minor centralization yep. risk. So centralization risk, and it also breaks the consensus mechanism, meaning if you're getting paid outside of the like, uh, if you're getting paid outside of the standard consensus, um, that could potentially become a problem if it becomes ubiquitous. Um, and, and the reason for that is because you're no longer you're not incentivized by the the consensus mechanism that is built into Bitcoin. You're incentivized by some external factor, which may have competing priorities with what the consensus mechanism of Bitcoin is. Um, and so that's why I think out of band like out of band payments in ubiquity could potentially become a problem. And and yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm actually not as concerned. Like I'm not sure any of these things in particular are inherently centralizing. Um, my, my concern is the is the um, would be the security model being viable uh, in a more dynamic fee environment. What is what is the what is the I think that is uh, I mean, we can we can cross that bridge when we get there. Uh, but I personally am not concerned at all about the transaction fee market being viable for security. I think it's mostly FUD leveled by shitcoiners. Um, we've seen Bitcoin purchasing power increase over time. We've seen adoption increase tremendously yeah. over time. Uh, we've seen, although the Bitcoin uh, reward mining subsidy has decreased in Bitcoin terms, um, it has increased in purchasing power uh, throughout its entire existence. Um, so yeah. I am personally not concerned about that. And uh, we can save that conversation for dispatch in 10 years. Um, okay. But I'm like, so. Let's just drill down on this out-of-band payment centralization risk. What is the concern there in terms of, well, how does that incentivize minor centralization? Well, you have to have an infrastructure in place in order to receive the out-of-band payments, right? So mm. you may be, it could be, you know, you're, you're a mining pool operator and you're very well connected and you're friends with all the people doing ordinary inscriptions. Or you could do what ViaBTC does and have a website accepting credit cards. So then if you're, if you're a smaller mining pool, you don't have that infrastructure. You have to build that infrastructure out, and that's a cost. And also these other things like paying for out-of-bound fees, that, that the market for that, you know, that there may be economies of scale and everyone just always goes to via BTC to pay. Or right. uh, Luxor pool is very well known inside the inscription community, so they always just reach out to Luxor and ask them to yep. put that. Uh, and and that's, that's all centralization. Um, yep. 100% and you're, you're totally right. And the, the reason, uh, so we've, we don't, we did the out of band payment one time, realized this is probably not a good idea. Let's, we, we put everything else in as TXV. So if you go look at any of the other, you know, we did, uh, uh, we did a, a big art piece called War Bonds and something called Skrilla, who's an old um, uh, counterparty artist uh, that did a, did a video. These are, um, you know, these are, inscriptions that we, we put the fee in the in the transaction itself. So it, it does remove that portion, but I'm doing that because I love Bitcoin and want to see it you know prosper. But if there becomes a reason why you wouldn't want to do that, set those fees at zero and take the payment out of band, you know, somebody that doesn't have, you know, somebody that doesn't have the, I guess, how do I say the, uh, like the, the, I get, I don't know how else to say it, but like it doesn't doesn't love Bitcoin as much as I do. Would would go and profit max, maximize for those those advantages, maybe for the centralization or or whatever whatever those advantages are. They, somebody's going to take advantage of it. If I've always said this, if the protocol allows it, somebody's going to take advantage of it and allows you to make more money. So, 
yeah, so I think we as as Bitcoiners need to be vigilant. And if we see any of this kind of out of band stuff increasing in value, we could say, oh, that's a security risk. And we, you know, try to, you know, do something if we can to stop that activity. And it's very similar. Yeah. There's another problem on Bitcoin, which is very similar, which is uh, merge mining. So merge mining is very popular. So the mining pools, you can see in the Coinbase transaction, they have a extra op return outputs, which are other protocols yeah. such as uh, RSK is a big one, also Stacks. Um, so th these mining pools earn other revenue on other protocols that are often call themselves side chains, for example. And yeah. that's extra infrastructure the mining pool needs in order to mine because they've also got to run Stacks, they've got to run RSK, they've got to run four or five things. So that's a, a, another problem or potential problem that could cause mining centralization that is, you know, has similar pro similar characteristics to the out-of-band fee problem. Yeah, uh, and if we ever see that become like right now, fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately for them, I guess fortunate for us that the the revenue for that is like very minimal. But if you look at, you know, we can look uh, outside of our ecosystem into Litecoin and Dogecoin, and we see that the merged coin, Dogecoin, is actually the more profitable coin. Which I don't know how that I don't know what the implications of that on their security model is, but it definitely can't be good. I wouldn't want a global reserve currency built with that potential. Uh, unrest in you know in it. So let's just to go back to out of out of band payments. There's this another aspect of out of band payments. So people tend to think of, especially uh, no coiners um, or Bitcoin deniers, uh, they tend to group mining pools as these single entities, right? They like, uh, oh, there's only five mining pools in the world that control this much hash rate, like. Bitcoin is controlled by these five people. But in reality, mining pools are comprised of many individual miners that are all contributing hash to a mining pool. Yes, there's one mining pool operator. They are operating the node. Um, there is a proposal stratum V2 that changes some aspects of that. But the point is, is mining pools are made up of many individual miners that are essentially profit sharing and combining their hash rate. Now, if you take an out-of-band payment, because... Uh, that is not a transparent market like uh, typical mempool gossip where you see all the transaction fees and what's included. Um, that payment needs to be settled in a different way. Uh, and there's not necessarily verification by the individual miners. I'm curious, Nick, uh, how, at Luxor, like how are you guys approaching that? Because as, as someone who, who does do mining, um, I would be concerned that as an individual miner, that maybe you are not telling me the truth about how much your out-of-band payment is, and as a result, I'm not getting my fair share as the as the miner. Yeah. So, well, one, one thing. So, Luxor operates FPPS, meaning we pay based on the expected value of your hash rate. It's effectively purchase purchasing the hash rate from your mining machine at a market rate, discounted by your fee. Whatever your fee amount is, we discount the uh, the amount we pay you by that amount. Um, the concern would be with uh, with a, like a PPLNS pool where the transactions that are being included in your block are distributed equally amongst everyone. Um, that would be a place where you would be you you would be either subject to I guess greater reward if your mining pool is very efficient at getting inscriptions into the mining pool uh, and taking those uh, those out of band payments and then distributing them effectively. Or you could be on the other side where you know in the case of like in the case of the big wizard, uh, for example, where we took zero fee. Uh, and filled up the entire block. Uh, and if we didn't distribute, if we didn't, we did distribute that. But if we didn't, 
then you would be out all of the transaction fee uh, or the mining pool would be out all of the transaction fee that was in there uh, if they didn't distribute it. So that's the concern. And, the, and it really breaks down to the, the different payment methodologies. Um, so I do think that but it goes know, further than that, right? Like there's no way to verify how much you were paid for that. That is true. Yeah, there's no there's no cryptographic way to verify how much we were paid. You have to trust your mining pool operator. But again, running PPLNS, you really have to trust your mining pool operator entirely anyway. Um, <clears throat> that would be the, you know, that would be kind of the, um, sorry, I got a little distracted, but yeah, that would be the, um, there's no, like I said, there's no cryptographic way to prove like how much you got paid for that. And you would have to trust the mining pool, but in a PPLNS pool, you have to trust that mining pool anyway, uh, because they could be injecting shares. There's, there's a lot of things because there isn't, no, there is no way to, you can, so I know that slush does their proof of hash rate, which is great. Uh, it does help prove how much hash rate they had at any given point in time. But the, the reason they don't do it for all shares is because like the amount of share data we consume as a mining pool is insane. Like we're taking billions and billions of data points a day, which becomes, you know, multiple terabytes of data. Uh, it's very, very difficult to prove all of that hash rate. Um, Stratum V2 maybe it improves this, uh, but, but it won't. It's, it's not the solution to every problem, uh, especially in Bitcoin mining. Jonathan, any thoughts on like how a miner, like if a miner were taking out of end payments, how would they prove that they're taking, uh, you know, that they're taking that amount, A, honestly, and then also paying it out? Um, yeah, it's very difficult. Of course, they could receive the payment on chain via Bitcoin and publish that, but then, you know, you can't prove the absence of any other payment, right? So, yeah, it's very difficult. I think it's impossible to prove the absence of a payment. So, yeah, right, they could have got the paid separately. Yeah, exactly. They could have just, you know, got a brown envelope or whatever under the under the, <laughs> secretly, and you you can't prove that that didn't happen. So, um, yeah, that's one of the reasons why these outbound payments are bad because they're yeah, they're just non-transparent. Um, and yeah, it's an opportunity for the mining pool operator potentially to yeah take money from the miners. Yeah, uh, but P I mean, PPLNS pools could do that already by injecting shares, but. So can we just quickly go through what are the top? Uh, so so you keep saying PPLNS. That's a different payout method. That mining oh, yeah. mining pools have different payout methods, right? Can we just go yeah, real yeah. quick into the the different popular ones and yeah, which so pools use which? There's three that are ubiquitous now. There are a lot of different payment methodologies that exist. Um, but the three that exist now, FPPS is by far the most popular and common. Um, that's what Foundry uses. That will, that's what Luxor uses. That's what you know Binance and I'm pretty sure Ant Pool. But basically, all the big pools do FPPS. And what that means is you look back over the previous day and see what the average fee rate was, and use that as your Coinbase reward in the calculation you use for the PPS calculation. So uh, the PPS calculation is just the Coinbase subsidy divided by the network difficulty times the number of shares that you, you have submitted. And in the Coinbase subsidy, uh, it's Coinbase subsidy plus fee. Uh, and so the, the, the plus amount there, the fee is basically the average fee over all the previous blocks. PPS plus is very similar. Um, so you get paid the base rate. So right now it'd be 6.25 divided by the network difficulty. And then the plus is they do a PPLNS round for whatever blocks that they found. Um, I, I think that, you know, that, 
that way it does introduce a little bit of trust because you have to trust that the mining pool is doing that properly, that calculus. Um, but that's, I think that's how F2 pool does it. And maybe via BTC, I'm not exactly sure which other pools do PPS plus, but that's another common one. Uh, the one I'm talking about PPLNS, uh, you can think of it almost as like a, it, it stands for pay per last N shares. Um, oh, and I guess FPPS means full pay per share and PPS just means pay per share. Um, and so PPLNS, uh, pay per last end shares, is a proportional reward. So, you know, if between the three of us, you know, we've submitted, you know, I submitted, uh, you know, a thousand shares total. I submitted 300 of them. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan submitted 500 of them and Odell submitted 200 of them. We would get paid out. You know, I would get, um, you know, half, you know, and then we would or I would get a th 30 percent. Jonathan would get 50 and Odell, you'd get 20%. Um, that's the way PPLNS works. The reason they call it PPLNS is because they want to uh, reduce what's called pool hopping. Uh, so you take a much longer look back window. So you have to look over multiple rounds. Uh, and that's how PPLNS works. Uh, the Doing a full prop is called proportional, which no mining pools really do now. I think maybe some of the private pools like Marathon and TerraPool do prop, but prop is basically uh, for a particular round, you know, N to N plus one, you proportionally pay out how many shares were, were paid, uh, proportionally pay out based on how many shares were submitted. So those are the differences. And you can see how with PPLNS and prop, you really have to trust that the mine and even plus to some PPS plus to some regard, you have to trust that the mining pool is accurately reporting how many shares were submitted. So, you know, if um, if say there were a thousand shares, you know, the pool reports that there were a thousand shares submitted, but there were actually only 800, they're effectively able to I don't, they're effectively able to, to steal 20% of the reward for that block. Um, I don't want to use the term steal because it is pretty negative and I, I would never accuse um, any of the PPLNS pools of doing that, but that's just the mechanic that they would use to do so. Jonathan, any, any thoughts on that? Like, do you think any of that is uh, inaccurate or needs clarification? Uh, no, that sounds fine. Okay, cool. The uh, and so and so when I mentioned yeah I guess when I mentioned um, the reason that you know when when an FPP if a, if an FPPS pool were to take out of band payments it wouldn't really affect the the payment scheme because the PP, right. the FPPS rate wouldn't really be modified um, much now if everybody was doing out of band payments the FPPS calculation would be completely broken um, miners would be getting paid out much much less than the reward that the pools were getting. Uh, so in that way, you would have to do PPS plus, uh, but that also would introduce right. um, another another layer of trust. No, oh, yeah, it's it gets really interesting if if a lot of of if the majority of pools are are taking out of band payments, then then yeah. our whole vision on on what the actual fee market is is completely wrong. We have no real idea yeah. of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, great. Uh, Cantillion Jim, thank you for adding uh, to talking about V2. Uh, unfortunately, V2 does not solve this problem. Well, so so V2 has a couple different proposal changes, right? Right now we're using Stratum V1. Yeah. Um, V2 uh, encrypts the connection between the miner and the mining pool. So you reduce man in the middle risk. And then yep. there's some small efficiency gains in terms of, I'm not sure where the efficiency gains are found. And then on top yeah. of that, the big thing that everyone likes to talk about is block construction, which right now the mining pool operator 
uh, is choosing which transactions are included in a block. But in stratum yep. B2 is this idea of distributed block construction where the individual miners are running their own nodes rather than the only the mining pool operator running a node. Yep. And they're choosing which transactions are included in a block. Right. They get to propose new transactions that get added to the block. But I, I don't think that I'd have to go check. I haven't checked the spec in a minute. So do correct me if I'm wrong, somebody and maybe people in the chat. I don't think that the miner can can reject a transaction that exists in the block that otherwise they wouldn't. Um, meaning they, they wouldn't mine unless a transaction or if a transaction is included that they don't want to be included. Um, well, I think. Point about Go yeah, down. I think the the that that hasn't been implemented yet, but the idea is that right. that will be implemented in Stratum B2 eventually, and then miners will be able to select the transactions themselves. But yeah, I don't think they can yeah. fully do that yet if they're doing B2. That's development work well, that's ongoing. Right, and I think that part of the spec is still being scoped out. Um, moving back to a yeah. couple of the points that you you already mentioned, Odell. So uh, I want to clarify. You know, I, I am. I am a big fan of Stratum B2. I think that it's an important and necessary upgrade to a very legacy, uh, to a very legacy mining protocol. Um, the problem that I have now is that um, <clears throat> the problem that I have now with with uh, with Stratum B2 is that it doesn't. It's not going to solve the problem that people want it to solve, which is job negotiation. Um, so back to a couple of your points, Odell. Uh, the encrypted the encrypted connection super important. Um, that is a phenomenal improvement. It does reduce censorship uh, at the ISP and networking level. Uh, so it means it's, it's it's harder to tell whether your traffic is mining traffic. Like for example, in China right now, if you want to mine in China at a pool that's not based in China, you have to use uh, some sort of like encrypted proxy that masks what your like what the data you're tra tra uh, transferring is. Uh, more than just an SSL uh, connection. So like SSL has been around for a long, long time. Um, and you know, a lot of miners, uh, some miners use it. A lot of miners don't. Most miners just use plain text. They don't really care about encrypting their data, but V2 will have that by default. So that's a really big improvement from a censorship perspective. The point that you were making about improving the efficiency of the, uh, of the protocol is uh, that they're going to be able to encode the protocol in binary. Uh, right now, the protocol is JSON-based, uh, which is a text-based human-readable protocol, which the Stratum protocol does not need to be human-readable. So it's like much, much more verbose than it needs to be. And they're claiming that they can compress it by around 30, 30 to 50%, I think, is the amount they were saying, um, if, you're, if you're using a, um, a binary protocol. Um, I, I do know that you're able to compress, you're able to compress the share submission by like 90%, um, which is a huge, huge improvement. Um, so I think that that's something, uh, awesome. So the, uh, <clears throat> the point that everybody wants to talk about with Stratum B2 though, is job negotiation. And I don't know if job negotiation is going to give you the, um, you know, the, the, what do you call it? The silver bullet to all of these like transaction selection problems. Um, because I, I, unfortunately at the end of the day, the mining pools, still operate within a jurisdiction and i'm I, my biggest concern is uh is is regulatory capture if you know if, if governments decide to try to uh push mining pools to let's just say there's some transaction that governments don't want to get mined by pools within their country i don't think stratum b2 gets you around that problem um, but uh, yeah but if, if stratum b2 is like does everything that it was promised to do which was you know, individual miners can choose their own transactions in theory that should significantly mitigate the out of bound fee problem because um, you wouldn't be submitting it to the, you know, you could pay a pool out of bounds, but then the individual miner might not include that transaction. 
and therefore the out-of-bounds fees didn't work and that would significantly misget the problem but yeah that i don't think that's been implemented yet yeah no as i think pavlinex is uh is one of the one of the important people to listen to here and he's chatting in the in the um in the message or in the chat here he says there is no negotiation in the reference implementation the pool can accept the proposal or close a connection in which the in which case the miner falls back and what he means by falls back is it falls back to another pool so what that means ultimately is that the pool your primary pool ultimately won't take your transaction if for whatever reason it says that it's not allowed. Uh, conversely, Jonathan, what you're proposing is, it, or sorry, it also doesn't solve the out-of-band payment, but um, conversely, what you're saying is that if the transaction ID is included and the miner decides to reject that transaction ID, let's just say there's some out-of-band transaction that shouldn't be in the mempool, uh, then eventually, um, then eventually, you, you know, that, that miner will decide, okay, I need to switch to a different mining pool that isn't including that transaction and forcing me to mine on a transaction that I don't want to. But it will ultimately still come down to the mining pool. And if, you know, for whatever reason, say, let's use a you know, big publicly traded Bitcoin miner here in the U.S. that wants to use a U.S. regulated mining pool because of regulatory capture, um, there isn't really a way for them to get around uh, that. You know, let's just, you know, for whatever reason, they decide they don't want to mine this transaction. They won't have fallbacks uh, because they need to be mining to U.S. pools. And there's really no way to get around that. Yeah, of course, if, if both the mining pool and the miner together want to censor a transaction, then of course, Stratton BT is not going to solve that problem. Well, if a mining pool wants to censor a transaction, if a mining pool wants to censor a transaction and the miner does not, then the miner has one choice, which is to switch to a different pool. And V2 does have that uh, that implemented that you can it has more rapid switching capability right now. Uh, getting switched over to another pool and ramping up that that connection uh, it does introduce some late, like some some lag or some you know, deg degradation in performance. But the Stratum V2 implementation should remove that, so you can fall back to another pool. And I think the point that I'm making is that a miner that's based here in the US or, or wherever inside some regulatory environment where their pool is, is also incorporated, they won't have the option to fall back. So that, that transaction will ultimately end up getting censored regardless. Sorry, I'm a little bit distracted because uh, we have good friend Pavel next in the chat. And he's uh, the lead maintainer of um, the open source project that is Stratum V2. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to get him to join us. Uh, I sent him an invite link. It looks like he will not be joining us, but uh, okay. I will hopefully get him on dispatch uh, after they ship in two weeks. Um, and okay. we can discuss it at length then. But yeah, Stratum V2 in general is this idea of trying to improve the protocol that miners, uh, individual miners are interacting with their pool operators because uh yep. i mean for better or worse stratum v1 we've been using for i believe like a decade now um yep. it's uh it was a, it was written when protocol. we were mining with we were written we were mining with gpus yeah um so i mean guys uh this has been uh, a fantastic conversation uh i personally could care less uh, or couldn't care less, couldn't care. I couldn't care less about NFTs. Um, I think we're about to hit a global economic collapse. 
uh, eventually I'm not going to say, I'm not a Balaji. I'm not going to say it's going to be in 90 days. You know, it could be in however many days. It's probably going to be after conference day. I'm not making any predictions about conference day. Um, but, uh, and we need a money that is, that is independent of, of corporations and governments. I think Bitcoin is that money. I think Bitcoin is going to probably price out a lot of things that are, that are bullshit and nonsense and only, only important thing or things that people value will be included. Some of those things might be NFTs. Some of those things might not be. But I do think that um, our mempools, uh, how blocks are being constructed, um, are very important. I think minor centralization risks are very important. That's why I, I, I thought and I continue to think that this conversation has immense value to uh, the dispatch audience and, and to myself because I'm trying to understand it more. Um, yeah, I have Jonathan uh, just messaged me who's on here. Uh, let's talk about, before we wrap up, um, let's talk about this one block uh, situation that happened. And, and can, can we get, to get some context to start first about what went on there? Yes, so um, this was on Saturday and I think uh, 1.40 a.m. So there were two blocks that were mined at about the same time. So... Uh, Foundry Pool USA minor block with the timestamp 1.41 and 10 seconds. And then seven seconds later, via BTC found a block um, of the same height. So this is just, a st you know, this is obviously why we have proof of work mining to, you know, it's a timing problem. So presumably via BTC didn't receive that Foundry block uh, in that seven seconds and therefore, you know, mined a conflicting block. And then there's a race to see uh, which chain was extended first. And this is a very normal thing that happens uh, reasonably often in Bitcoin. So I'm looking here at the data from my node. So um, even though there were, the timestamps have a second seven second gap, I saw the foundry uh, pool block first at 1.41 and 40 seconds. And then 35 seconds later, I saw the via BTC block. Um, and the via BTC block is the one that eventually won. So that is the one that had the blocks built on top of it. Um, so that means my local node experienced a real. The way I kind of think of it is that, you know, this is a stale block situation. A stale block may or may not result in a real from the perspective of your node. Because I saw the losing block first, that meant that my node did experience a real. Um, and yeah, I think there was some confusion. For those yeah, in the back, because can you say it again? I would say a reorg is when your local node you know, has a chain tip and then that, that tip loses and then you go backwards and then forwards again on a, a different chain. Um, so 100%. Whether it's one block, yeah. whether it's one block or two or three, it's a reorg. Yes, exactly. So I think that what happened now was a real from the perspective of my node. However, if I, if my node saw the via BTC block first, my node would have never experienced a real, right? It would have just carried on moving True. forward. It wouldn't have cared about that foundry USA yep. block. Um, so the reason, and I guess the reason yeah, yeah. I became, you know, I got a little vocal about this is because there's in no circumstance that via BTC didn't see that block in that 40 seconds. There is no circumstance. They're all peered together. We all share peers, like we peer together. There is no chance that they didn't see that. But then, what? What? what yeah, because I think there was a tweet alleging that it was like kind of foul play from via BTC and selfish mining. Um, 
and I because I don't think that's right because um, the the nodes the the tweet was saying that well um, look my log show update chain tip happened and it's got the three blocks the block before the block where there was two blocks and then the next block all happened at the same time which was five minutes later at one forty six a.m. UTC. Um, Whereas I think that's completely normal. That's how the node operates, right? That, that node first saw, I think that was your node, right? It first saw the foundry, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. the foundry block. Uh, it regarded that. So I think everybody's node saw the foundry block, the, okay. node, the, foundry, no, yeah. uh, the foundry block first because it was like 40 yeah. seconds previous. So I think everybody reorged. But anyway, and the tweet you're referencing was my tweet and it's been uh, okay. a point of contention. And, uh, and a lot of people have been very mean to me about it, but I stand by okay. it. Because I don't think it was but, but let's, yeah, continue. foul play or indication of selfish mining. Because right there was a six, a five-minute gap, right? So first this happened, and then the via BTC block was built five minutes later. So if if it was, but Jonathan, can you define selfish mining real quick for the audience? Okay, so the selfish mining attack, which I think was first discussed way back in like 2010, maybe by I think Dan Larimer was the first person to talk about this. Is basically you find a block but you don't publish it. Instead, you you just keep your block secret and keep trying to build on top of it. And then if another block is published, you then broadcast your block. And hopefully what you're trying to achieve is you build like a secret chain of maybe two or three blocks. And then if someone else has published, publishes their block, you publish your whole chain and you're the winner um, because you've got a longer chain. And this supposedly, you know, if you exclude kind of other considerations. The game theory is if you have 33% of the hash rates in the network, you can be more profitable by selfish mining um, because you, you just make more money by kind of um, excluding other people from from getting the block reward. So that's the idea. Right, you don't mining, share very, with the network. It's a very you negative thing. don't share with thing. the competing it's, miners. Exactly. You keep yeah. blocks held secret, and that's a very bad thing for Bitcoin because it just means... You know, less information is published, more stuff's happening in secret. And again, it just causes mining centralization. So I don't think that did happen. And I think if it did happen that, or it was happening, that would be very negative. Um, but I, I don't think there's any evidence in this case that it, that it happened. Uh, yeah, because it was, yeah, no, so, um, Nick, you want to comment on this as well? Uh, yeah, so, so the, the, the um, how do I say this? The consequence of, of selfish mining was spy mining and spy mining is where you are. Your mining pool listens to other pools and they broadcast uh, a new job that appears to uh, indicate a new height. You can update your internal state with that job uh, and start and start processing it and basically send out an empty job template. So a lot of times when you see a, uh, an empty block, there was one actually earlier today. A lot of what you're seeing is either spy mining or or a, a, a variation of selfish mining. Um, selfish mining doesn't have to be just one block. It can Wait, be didn't we? Blocks. And didn't we used to call that something different? Not because uh, uh, it was happening a lot. Spy mining. It was. Is there another term that it's referred to as? So you, the the consequence of spy mining is empty blocks. Um, but we also see empty blocks as a result of the covert segwit. Uh, which is what was happening back in 2017 when Antpool was mining empty blocks. Jihan Wu has their has his famous tweet about you know fork your mother, uh, all of that. That was um, that was due to covert segwit, meaning you could mine in that in that in that case you could mine. Uh, they they had figured out a, a, a software improvement 
that required you to, to mine empty blocks, uh, and it reduced the energy consumption of your miner by about 18 to 20%. And so they decided, well, mining fees are only like 1% to 2%. I can reduce my my cost by, by 18%. I'm just going to mine empty blocks. And so that's what we saw empty blocks at that time for. Um, what you're, and I think, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but they were, uh, it was, uh, I remember like Adam back, like talking about, like, it was like uh header first mining or is, is that, am I like making that up? There well, was, SPV, like, yeah, it's, it's SPV mining, mining. You, you build on the next yeah. block before you download and verify the block, just so that you're faster. Right. Exactly. And that's, yeah. that's a, that's a variation, I would say, maybe a variation of, of selfish mining, or, or you can call it SPV optimization, where you get the header uh, from some other from some other pool, or maybe you're listening to their stratum connection and getting the note, getting the updates from the stratum, uh, the stratum server, which will have the most up-to-date information. So if you notice a chain tip update from the stratum server, you can immediately build a block internally with that information and then start, uh, start your miners mining on it. And that's called spy mining. But like what yeah, Jonathan's think... talking about is SPV mining. Yeah, I think SPV mining and spy mining are very yes, similar concepts, right? So spying right. is when you're, you're connecting you know, via stratum or you're connecting to the pool of your rival pool to yeah. get information about this block headers faster. And then you know, the, the other thing is you know, is pre starting to mine on the next block without fully validating the previous block. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, it's a, you know, it's, it's only a second or two improvement, but a second or two is very big in mining when, you know, miners are talking about, you know, single bips in, uh, in, in, um, you know, in revenue yeah. in revenue changes across pools yeah so in in this in this scenario on on saturday morning um yeah when you're well basically all, all major nodes experienced this one block reorg when they had the foundry pool block at 141 and then six or five minutes later at 146 there was another block that built on top of the via btc block and you showed your logs which had, you know, update chain tips. So what they, what the logs show is when you jump from the shorter chain to the longer chain, you um, go back one block to, you know, block height seven eight one two seven six. Then you yep. move forward one block to the via VTC block seven eight one two seven seven, and then you move yep. again forward one block to seven eight one two seven eight, and that's all in basically one instance. So your logs show the same second right. these three new blocks. That doesn't mean those three new blocks were received at the that same time. It just means you reconsidered a new tip and moved to a new tip at that right. time, which is moving back one and then moving forwards. In your um, in your node, when you're saying that you received the block at a particular time, what are are you looking at uh, a log or are you looking at um, uh, something in the in the block data itself? Okay, so yeah, what I'm talking about is this website Fork Monitor, which yeah, it is a bit different than a normal node. So I think this, that first seen time is when we um, write to our database the details of that block. And that's, so that's basically, that's not really a Bitcoin core output. That's just something from Fork Monitor's own website that produces yeah. that timestamp. Is, uh, is there, is there more, more data available? Um, like I was actually, I was chatting with Peter Todd and some other folks about this. Like it's, it's hard to get the exact time that a, a block was, like you said, without making some changes or, or whatever to, to get the exact time that your node received a block. Um, well, rem not remember the, the data. well, exactly. Cause remember that when everyone regarded that foundry pool block as the tip and then the yep. via BTC block came in, the default behavior of Bitcoin core 
is not to download that because that's not the chain tip. So the default behavior right. is you only want to download a full block of the most work valid chain. Otherwise, yeah. it's like a DOS attack. Someone yeah. could submit all kinds of large blocks that aren't, you know, the, the most proof of work and spam the node. So I think most nodes wouldn't have downloaded that via BTC block at all until it was built on and became part of the longest chain. And then they downloaded it five minutes later at 1.46 a.m. So that's yeah. my understanding of how a normal node would operate. Would have operated, yeah. <clears throat> the reason it's so suspect is because of how close in proximity it was to this event occurring. Um, the Meaning the, the D-Gods block. The D-Gods block. So we're talking about block, let's say we're talking about block N. Uh, the D-Gods block, the block that was going to include all this transaction key, was block N plus 2. And so for it to happen at this exact time is incredibly suspect, given how, I don't want to say rare, given that these things happen maybe once a month, but for it to happen at that exact time in a 30-day period is certainly suspect. Yeah, but the, the, the five-minute gap between 141 and 146 is potentially an indication that nothing untoward happened. It was just, the, the, you know, they, they, may, they may have been trying to, I'm sure they were trying to spy mine or whatever, in the first few seconds, but then they only actually found the next block five minutes later. Is the uh, is the, are you are you able to get like the the data around the blocks around the other blocks themselves? Like the um, it doesn't look like that's available here, but it would Who be found super interesting block? to kind of see the rest of them. Who found the block with all the fees in it? Ant pool. Well, that was Dion's another block. But I think that, that that incident was was a was a, a while ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, there could be something untoward here, but I, I don't think the, the, the time gaps in this particular incident look like it's just a normal one block reorg to me, I guess. Right. But, um, but yeah, you never know. They could have, what block are we could talking about? What is, what was the block, the one that had all the fees in it? What block number was that? Uh, shoot. I just had it up here. It was, um, 781279. So if you go to mempool.space, you'll see 781279 had like 3.5 BTC uh, worth of reward in it. Which is. And that was two blocks after the real, basically. Yeah. Exactly. And to be clear, we see these one block, like stale blocks, orphan blocks, whatever you want to call it. We see them pretty common. It's like what Nick said, like once a month. Yeah, like once a month, every every few weeks. And this yep. is why yeah. this is why like the common. This is partially why the common uh, recommendation is to wait six blocks on the confirmation. Is to be abundantly clear that you're not going to see any selfish mining. You're not going to see any reorgs that happen before you release your goods or services that you're selling your Bitcoin for. Yep. Settling a transaction. Yep. Yep, and also on this particular incident on block height 781277 um fault monitor did not detect any conflicting transactions whereas there was another real right. uh, the next day where there was once one small uh, conflicting transaction yep. of like the conflict was of zero value but there was a small conflict yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, the conflict I, I think the conflict it wasn't really a, a this in this case it wasn't really a, an attempt to get a you know get um you know a double spend or something through it was just to maximize uh minor value or minor reward, I should say. 
But regardless, regardless of this was an, a deliberate process by, and I think, I think it's safe to assume that Anpool and Via BTC are like part of the same cartel. They're like the Chinese miners that all hang out together. Um, if, if, regardless of that was the case in this situation, I think if we start to see more of these, you know, one block NFT sales or inscription sales where the fees are way higher than other blocks, like there's going to be shenanigans, like miners are going to fuck around with that uh, because that's their incentive to do so, right? Like they're going to want to try and get those fees. Yeah. Well, yeah, that could happen. And I really hope not because I think that's, that's very bad for Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, if we have these kind of, if, if they're yeah, willing to not build on the longest chain just to try and snipe some more fees, and we need to try to mitigate yeah. against that risk as best as possible. So how do we mitigate? Do you have any thoughts on how to mitigate that, Jonathan? Yeah. Well, you know, one way is, is the lock time thing, right? So if you, yeah. I think Bitcoin calls us up by default, if whenever, and you use wallets that set a lock time on your transaction such that your transaction is only valid at the current block height or higher, then it can't, then the, the miners are, are incentivized, never, they can't reorg your transaction back in the past and scoop those fees. So I think one good way to right. mitigate that is, is lock time. For your, that's for your own security, for your own payments, right? Um, well, it's it's kind of, well, it's also, not necessarily just for, it's also for everyone else, right? If I'm sending someone like a, a big transaction right. with a big fee and I put a, a lock time on it with the current block height, then the, the miners, that won't incentivize the miners to do a one block reorg and that one block reorg could damage the security of other people as well, right? So you could argue using lock time is making you a good citizen and helping reduce the incentive to real back but it would it, i mean it would whoever gets the fee like just because the the end just because the lock time is set the the miner that ends up getting the fee for that uh that transaction still wins the fee so there is like it doesn't really i don't think it changes the incentive to reorg to capture more fees well it just means they can't reorg back in the past they can only do it from this point forwards so it's only a mitigation. It's not it doesn't really solve the problem that well, but it stops them going right. back into the past to to real you to like combine your fees with even more fees from the past. Yeah, understood exactly. So like you know, in 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 the case you know, there's a you know big mint tomorrow night. Um, there's a big big mint tomorrow night. Like mining pools will know that that's coming. You know, say there's going to be ten BTC worth of fee in there. Um, they're all going to be very incentivized to selfish mine at n minus one. Wait for that them to build that block. Build n and then release as soon as they found N. So, so that you'll think that that might've been what ViBTC were trying in this instance. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And that's what I, and I was going to say, like the way that I would have executed this, like my pool is too small, you know, we're maybe five or 6%. Um, you need, you know, you need a, all you need is a, a little bit bigger pool than that, maybe in the 15 to 20% range. And then a little bit of luck, you need to get a little bit lucky. And I think what, if I were executing this in that in that case, you can build a statistical model for what your expected value from doing something like this would be and determine how long should I be holding on to this block in my memory, like in memory before I distribute it to the network uh, to decide like what is my, you know, what is my profit? Uh, what is my expected value here? That expected value goes down over time. And the longer you hold onto a block without broadcasting it, uh, your expected value for that block goes down. You know, if you release it immediately, your expected value is 100%. But there's a different curve based on how much hash rate you have, which is why 51% attacks can occur. Um, in this case, I would have attempted, I would, I would have attempted to mine n minus one, or maybe even n minus two, 
uh, hold on to that block for a moment, try to get n or n minus one, and then and then you know basically build my own internal chain that's one or two blocks long, and then release that as soon as I uh, as soon as I mine the target block. That would be the way you would attempt to build to do something like this. And it, and it was just so coincidental for it to happen at that exact height with all of the hype that was going on. It's crazy. Okay, so you, and but do you think their their attempt was coming? They were collaborating with Ampu, and that their attempt was successful, or, did, or, or their attempt failed? Or I think they, they really I, th I think they, I think they missed. Uh, I think they missed by one block. I think they got success. I think they were successful because they were able to get the target block, but the f the fork occurred one block too early. The 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 block that they were attempting was one to one block too early. Um, but yeah, but they could have been collaborating with Ample, and Ample did did get that high fee block rate. Ultimately, ultimately did win it. Yes, I do think they ultimately won it. Okay. But yeah, I mean, if that did happen, that's you know pretty bad. We should definitely try and look into this and try to determine if it did. I guess. But I'm not sure. I mean, it's unavoidable, it, I right? Yeah, it's just a free market at work. Like, yeah. how can you? You have to wait for more confirmations. Like, that is. Yeah, exactly. That's it. I mean, that's why we have the six confirmation uh, target or maybe, you know, some places have 10, but um, that's that's the reason for it. Um, I've always been a big fan of confirmations. I'm not a huge fan of anything that re relies on, you know, low confirmation numbers or zero conf. I'm not a huge fan of zero conf at all. Um, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of uh, full RBF. Um, you know, I, I turned that on for our pools. It unfortunately got turned off because of a misconfiguration, but yeah, turning it back on. Uh, big fan of a full RBS, just because I, I think that we need to rely on confirmations for the security of the network. I guess just thinking I guess about sustained, this attack, though, but like sustained high fees. A one forty one. Oh yeah, continue, Jonathan. Go. Yeah, if if at one forty one a.m. via BTC saw the foundry block first, I mean, they really should have just started there, and they didn't have uh, uh, a big enough secret chain. They should have just started their selfish mining attack again after that block at 141 rather than right. carrying on. And, they, and, and, and they may have, we don't know that. You don't know that. Um, because you, you would only, you would only know it if they released the block, if they had mined the blocks and released them. Yeah, but they, they, they built, they built on an alternate, they, you know, the chain forked and by BTC produce another block at 781277. Whereas if they were, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, you could, if they were selfish mining, they could have, they could have just said, and they, all they were trying to do is capture that big fee that was in two blocks time. They could have tried yep. to build on top of, started selfish mining again on top of that foundry block, and that might have been a right. policy. And I think that, I think that if I had to guess, it was a coding mistake that somebody was trying to do the block that you're talking about, and they were off by one. Yeah, that would be my guess. Many, many such guess. cases. Uh, I mean, there's uh, off by one error in the G Coinbase Genesis transaction, the Genesis transaction. So the difficulty of that. Uh, no, it was a seg. It was a Segwit 2x joke. Uh, the. Um, I wonder how much of it. Um, I wonder if the calculation came into play at all about them. Essentially, they were competing with Foundry, which is the largest mining pool. Like if they were selfish mining against like a slush pool or a smaller pool if they would have been more aggressive with it i mean potentially you could hold on to i mean in that case i mean you're, it doesn't matter who, who's you're like trying to to 
I guess, trying to orphan um, be, or who, whose block you're trying to reorg um, because you're competing at the N plus one block at that point. You're competing against all pools again. Um, so I don't know if it would matter who in particular mined the block. Well, it matters because Foundry, Foundry has the strongest incentive to just say fuck you and continue mining on top of their block because it's their that's block. That's true. That is true. Yep, that's true. And they probably and Foundry has the most hash. And Foundry, I, I don't have the. I, I wish I knew how to do the math more effectively, but they probably could have done. Like if they had done it, they probably could have reforked uh, and got their you know got their reward back. And I imagine that as mining pools get more sophisticated, this sort of thing will become more ubiquitous where, you know, it makes sense for you to like effectively defend your block uh, as, you know, especially as a pool that has, you know, what, what do they have? Like 45%, 40% hash rate. Uh, they have 31.6 according to oh. the one week chart on mempool.space. Okay. Well, that's good. I thought it was much higher, but that's good that they're uh, yeah, you're right. 31.6. So that's good. Um. So what I was going to say earlier, I mean, in terms of mitigation, uh, a sustained high fee market, like if there's if there's constant high demand for Bitcoin block space, mm. could reduce the frequency of stuff like this, I think, right? Because there wouldn't be so much variance from block to block in terms of how much. Yeah, exactly. If there's always a big mempool and there's always a lot of fees, then, you know, why do you want to reorg and go back in the past when... There's, it's a rich, healthy environment with a lot of fees available. So, If we had empty uh, mempools here at this yeah. time, when this happened, it could have been even more chaotic back and forth in terms of who the fighting over that block. Because they might have been able to do the math where it's like, yeah. uh, uh, we could wait. We can do this. We can keep this up for four blocks and not really lose that much opportunity cost. Yep. Yeah, it makes sense to, uh, to like you said, you know, from an expected value perspective, it, make, it could make sense. There are times where it would make sense. And volatility is going to become, you know, mining, mining is already an EV game where you're, you're effectively, you know, calculating expected value of every hash. Um, you know, this will become an even more dynamic, you know, the expected value of block, like right now, the expected value of N and N plus one and N plus two, generally about the same, but in the future, uh, imagine, you know, a very long block, which accumulates a lot of fee in the mempool uh, or in its mempool that block has a much higher reward at N than N plus one um, in, in theory. Uh, and, and there may become a time where mining pools start to really optimize for, for this. And it, it, it I don't want to say it will break the consensus mechanism, but it will certainly require con confirmations. You're going to want to make sure you have, uh, you know, six or seven confirmations for, uh, for any high value transactions, because this could potentially be a, a place where, you know, more forks and more reorgs become, uh, where forks and reorgs become a bit more commonplace. Is it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's Eric Voskule that talks about this a lot in terms of, um, yeah. In that type of situation, you have a strong incentive to pay a high fee for your for important transactions because you basically want the security that that provides in terms of reducing reorg risk. Um, yeah, I mean, his his argument is that you know the censorship resistance is only proportional to, to the fee you pay and those fees you're paying are for censorship right. resistance. Right. Which I'm sure in, in the long term is, is absolutely right. The censorship resistance and um, is not is not coming for nothing. You you have to pay. 
Right. This is a bit of a chicken and egg. That's why I don't think, I really think this idea that there's, that transaction fees can't cover, just, it's just, it's not, it's not based in actual reality of what we're going to see. But I mean, we'll see what happens when, when we get there. Well, yeah, I mean, the the critics of Bitcoin tend to argue it both ways, right? They argue, look, Bitcoin's stupid. It's so expensive. That's not going to work. <laughs> the fees are so high. And then they also argue uh, it's not sustainable. How are you going to you know, pay for mining incentives? But obviously, both those criticisms can't be right. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of uncertainty. Can we really get the balance right? And that the fee market is healthy enough to incentivize mining, but also it's reasonable enough that people can use it for transactions and it's not too too expensive. So. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, so the point, um, I think both points are valid. So Adele, I think what you're saying is that, uh, you know, the concern being that, you know, Bitcoin, the the security model may, may not work long term because of the low, like, because of not enough transaction fee. The, the What I'm kind of mentioning is that in the future, when transaction fees are much more dynamic, or not just transaction fees, when the block subsidy is much less predictable based on uh, fee fee volume or just just standard block times, you know the fee volume could be exactly the same. But well, the block reward, uh, if not a the block subsidy. is right. uh, block, yeah, sorry, the full block reward, not just the subsidy, the full block reward. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. Because it'll be um, mostly transaction but, fees at that point, so it'll change from a block to block yeah. point of view. Than a situation yeah, exactly. where where yeah. the block subsidy is the majority of the revenue for the miner. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And as a percentage, like I said, we'll probably see maybe not this having, but the next having for sure. We'll see, or hopefully see. I'm fingers crossed. I mean, hope isn't a strategy, but it does seem like we're headed that way, where um, the transaction fee will be more than a hundred percent of the total block reward. You guys have anything to add on Correct. this on this topic? I shouldn't say over 100% of the block reward. It will be more than 100% of the block subsidy, making up a much larger portion right. of the block reward. It can't. Yeah. The block I think, reward. I think that was 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully that. Yeah. Hopefully that was clear. And but uh, I wanted to clarify the, that because it was the block uh, reward. The, the block reward is the total amount the miner earns, and it's. It's, it's it's split up between the block subsidy, which is what splits in half every every four years, and the transaction fees yep. included in the block. Correct. Yep. And so the statement I made that 100% of the block reward, more than 100% of the block reward comes from fee is inaccurate because 100% is it's always going to be 100%. And what I was saying was that it will be more than the transaction fee will be more than 100% of the block subsidy, making up say more than 50% of the total block reward for any given block. And as that number becomes greater, the dynamism between two particular blocks, say N and N plus one can become much, much greater. Um, and that could start to introduce more of these shenanigans as you call them. going to be interesting yeah well i mean also yeah if the we just got to make sure the mining industry is also more decentralized right because the more decentralized it is then the more chance these selfish mining attacks or real attacks have a failing so yep, we want exactly that's i guess the the biggest tool we have is to try to make the mining industry as decentralized as possible that is 100 percent true uh and i hope that I hope that we can get there. It does seem like we're seeing some centralizing effect here, especially in the U.S. as 
uh, you know, the, the, a, the rule of law here is very strong, regardless of what, um, you know, what the media says and what, you know, everybody thinks the U S the U S is property rights and rule of law, very, very strong in comparison to other parts of the world. That's why lots of, uh, you know, big investment is being made in the U S and that's why most of the biggest miners in the world operate in the U S is because they know that their investment is going to be protected and honored by the U S government, um, where that, and that is not always the case in most in, in a lot of countries. Yeah, I mean, we saw that firsthand with China. But then the concern is with America is America is the land of financial regulations and KYC. And we don't want too much yep. hash in America at the same time. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was I always thought that, that you at the U.S. would be able to compete, um, at, you know, one for one with uh, with China. And I was actually disappointed when they banned Bitcoin mining because China had a very like the most robust mining ecosystem. Uh, and I wanted I wanted, you know, U.S. miners to be able to go and compete and win on merit, not because of some swipe of the pen. Uh, but alas, here we are. Uh, and you know, we lost a, a really large portion of, uh, of mining hash rate. So, well, my bull case, my bull case, at least personally, for the distribution of hash is ultimately the mining game is a game of reducing energy input cost, uh, particularly when you start to see ASICs, uh, the, the life cycles of ASICs last longer and longer before they get obsolete. Um, and as a result, uh, miners that are able to utilize waste heat um, as a way to reduce uh, their input costs um, will have an advantage. And it's easier to do that on smaller scale I think there's a bit of a diseconomies of scale once we start hitting that threshold. Um, and I think we're trending in that direction. So like I expect my bull case for Bitcoin is, you know, boilers around the world in apartment buildings and hotels and whatnot are all have ASIC miners in them. And as a result, uh, these large warehouse miners will have a, lar- a smaller percentage of the hash. Um, but we will see. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If you look at the history of ASICs, right, earlier on, there was huge, like, percentage improvements in efficiency of, like, 10x improvement. Yeah. Um, and I think since Bitcoin launched, ASIC efficiency has probably improved by about a million x, whereas now the new generations are only, like, 20, 20 15% improvements on the previous generation, uh, which means that these ASICs will be around a lot longer, and the mining industry is going to be much less about a big race to, you know, get a better relationship with the foundry and the ASIC manufacturer and deploy CapEx and buy all the machines faster than everyone else. It will be more about finding the best energy assets, the lowest cost energy assets. And as you say, these alternative uses for the heat. Um, and hopefully that results in a more distributed mining industry than this other dynamic. But you know, exactly. we don't know for sure, but there's, it's definitely a potential there um, that that kind of, where the cheapest, best places to deploy them from an energy perspective will result in a more decentralized mining industry, certainly probably will be more decentralized than, say, Ethereum's um, proof of stake, where there's no, it's nothing to do with the energy infrastructure across the world. So yeah, right. it, there's a chance there that that could hopefully you know, result in more decentralization. But it's as yet unproven. It's just what we believe could happen, I guess. My, my bull case for mining decentralization is more around uh, the, the sparsity of energy. Um, energy, more or less, is rather distributed around the world pretty pretty equally. Yep. It just happens to be that we can't capture it in all places equally. And uh, the regulatory environment of all places is not equivalent. 
Um, the U.S. happens to be, you know, kind of a utopia in that regard. There's a lot of energy here um, and the rule of law and, and strong property rights are pretty are also very strong here. You know, I, I but, do imagine that, you know, places like the Mideast start to become, you know, pretty big producers of hash here over the next decade. Yeah. Put differently, you can only get so much cheap energy in any given location before you start driving up the cost yeah. of energy. Yeah. Way, way more succinct than what I said, but yes. Awesome, gents. Uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. Before we wrap it, I'd like to end with final thoughts. Um, Nick, final thoughts. I've never been more bullish on Bitcoin mining. Um, regardless of what we think about NFTs, I'm not going to lie. I, a lot of times I miss the NFT. Um, a lot of times I miss kind of how like NFTs work. It's not really my purview, but uh, I'm very bullish on what they bring to the fee market in Bitcoin, and I'm very excited for it. And I've never been more bullish on Bitcoin mining. Uh, I want Bitcoin mining to continue to prosper here in the U.S., but also elsewhere. Um, and so, yeah, I'm I'm very bullish uh, bullish on Bitcoin mining. I'm super excited and love building out the, these these types of systems and want to continue to do so. And uh, very appreciative of Jonathan and the hard work that they do on on Bitmex research. So I'll uh, kick it over to him and let him give his final word as well. Thanks, Nick. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. For this, thanks, Nick. Um, and yeah, then my final thought is: yeah, it's only I think it's May 2024 when the subsidy halves, and then four years after that, it's going to be 1.5625 Bitcoin, and that's uh, quite a low number. Um, and we really want to, you know, hope by then we have a very, you know, strong, rich fee market with all kinds of activity with ordinals and inscriptions. And the more diverse that is, the more robust that, that fee market's going to be. And hopefully the higher fees there's going to be in a deeper mempool there's going to be, which is going to keep you know, mining incentives strong. So anything like inscriptions, which adds diversity, richness and bidding to that, to, to the fee market, I think is a, is a positive thing and, and it should be encouraged. Awesome. Thanks, Jonathan. I want to thank both of our wonderful guests uh, for joining us today. Thank you guys. Um, I want to thank, uh, all the, the audience who joined us in the live audience and live chat. I appreciate you. Thanks to all the, the freaks out there who support the show. The easiest way is at sillodispatch.com slash donate or through your favorite podcasting 2.0 app. If you weren't around in 2017, consider picking up the block size war. Jonathan's book is fantastic. It really, it's a really important um, time in Bitcoin's history, and, and we should never forget the lessons that were learned during that period. Um, I love you all. Stay humble, stack sats. Thanks, guys.